Welcome to the Athletes Record, where athletes share an honest and inspirational account of their sporting life, the things that matter most to them, and what they learned along the way. The Athletes Record is brought to you in partnership with Lifestyle Sports, Ireland's leading sports retailer. Whether you're a novice runner or an established pro, Lifestyle Sports has all the gear you need to help you train faster, further and stronger. This podcast is produced in partnership with Athletics Ireland and Irish Runner magazine. In this episode, we meet a legend of the track, Sebastian Coe. As a middle distance runner, Coe won four Olympic medals, including the 1500 meters gold at the Olympic Games in 1980 and again in 1984. He set nine outdoor and three indoor world records in middle distance track events. Born in London and later moving to Sheffield, Coe describes a happy childhood where his father introduced him to his first love, jazz music. Well, it was a happy childhood, you know, and I know that's probably not not a a particularly popular narrative at the moment. Everybody sort of (laughs) bemoans the fact that, you know, their childhood was a challenge. Mine was actually a happy childhood, very openly admit that to very loving parents, um, a brother, two sisters, and all very close and sort of fairly normal upbringing. My dad was a, a manufacturing engineer. My mum was an actress, actually. She was rather trained. Uh, and I have an interesting background because my grandfather was Indian. So my mother was born in their hotel in, uh, in Delhi and then came back to London uh, in her sort of early teens. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a whole mix of, of influences uh, and cultural and artistic influences as well, because my dad was an engineer, but he was a very accomplished painter. Uh, and my mum, of course, was obviously very much into the uh, performing arts, And so I have a massive debt of gratitude to my father, not just for his coaching prowess, but because he was also the guy that introduced me to jazz and my mum, because she was an absolute opera and classical music fiend. I was brought up in my formative years in Sheffield and the Halley Orchestra used to play, you know, once a month on a Friday night. So On a Sunday night, I was normally in some rather dodgy pub listening to jazz with my dad. And on a Friday night, it was sort of a little more establishment, listening to the Halley Orchestra at the City Hall in Sheffield. So, no, it was was a happy childhood. So I remember listening to a recording of Dave Brubeck, which was, you know, really swept the United US campuses in the in the 50s became hugely popular uh, the first first jazz musician to win a Pulitzer Prize which came as a huge shock because most people thought Duke Ellington would actually get that but Ellington fell out with the nominations committee and it was Brubeck that was actually the first recipient of, of a Pulitzer Prize and I remember listening to that and thinking it was the most amazing sound. And jazz was on in the house all the time. Um, My father used to work in Birmingham uh, in a manufacturing business. And so on the way back on a Saturday lunchtime, I used to accompany him to the factory. 
And on the way back on a Saturday lunchtime, in what was a very rudimentary car radio, we'd listened to Humphrey Littleton, who on what was Radio 2 or Lightweight, whatever it was then, had his jazz hour. And so I'm, I'm sure my father planned the journey back, which was sort of an hour between Birmingham and where we lived, uh, to be able to listen to that. And then on a Saturday night, there was Steve Race's jazz record requests on Radio 3. So jazz was always on. And, and I guess I sort of grabbed, you know, most people would probably tell you that they got into jazz through sort of the more popular sounds of British bands like Ackerbilk or Kenny Ball. I actually got in through a slightly more sophisticated, I guess, slightly more advanced. I then discovered the extraordinary sounds of Louis Armstrong, who still remains to this day the inspiration. I mean, if you speak to the Beatles or Elvis Presley or Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Billie Holiday, they will, Rolling Stones, they will all tell you that the most influential musician in of, of, of the 20th century was probably Louis Armstrong. And the most influential composer, Duke Ellington, and I know that's probably going to send the classical uh, music aficionados running for the uh, running for the exit. But you know, I, I tend to believe that as well. So Louis Armstrong, then I got into the the, the big band sounds of the Basie, the the Basie band. I love Ellington, and then yeah, in, into sort of more contemporary stuff, but. As the late great Benny Green once commented, the the, the lovely jazz writer and, and and wrote on so many different subjects, but jazz was his thing. He said, "Look, I just don't take a great deal of washing in after 1958," um, and that was a big year because that was pretty much the year that um, Billie Holiday and Lester Young, two absolutely mountainous figures in the jazz world. Uh, past. They had a very profound, very close relationship, both of them. Um, nobody was quite sure whether it went beyond friendship, but they were incredibly close. They recorded some beautiful stuff together and they both died within months of each other. Um, and so, yes, I'm, 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 I'm Catholic enough to sort of wander beyond 1958. But if you actually pinned me down on my jazz preferences it would be probably the small groups the lester youngs the coleman hawkins the basie sounds of the of the 40s and 50s that i tend to drift to if i have an, a couple of hours where i just want to go back into my collection there they're the recordings that i would probably pull out as a lovely british uh, musician i got to know pretty well a guy called lenny hastings and he, I was at a concert of his, I can't remember, it was some club in London, and a woman came up to him afterwards and said, I hate jazz. And he went, oh, really, madam? I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, yeah, it gives me a headache. And he said, would that be because you have to think about it? <laughs> which, which was one of the better, better lines. But, you know, on, it, it, can li it, it lifts my mood. And I know if I have gone too long without listening to jazz because I just become mentally a little duller, I think. Co rose to worldwide fame in the late 1970s, breaking middle distance world records, including in 1979, setting three world records in 41 days. 
The stage was set for Sebastian Coe to strike for Olympic glory at the 1980 Moscow Olympics. In the 800 metres and 1500 metres, Coe faced his great rival and compatriot Steve Ovette in what became one of the greatest rivalries in sporting history. You know, where would I start? It was an extraordinary period of pressure. I remember arriving in the, uh, in the uh, village and journalists, the first port of call for every journalist, and it was when journalists could actually access the village, there was a lot more fluidity. Their first port of call was not, you know, French journalists were not ringing up, finding out about their pole vaulters or the, uh, you know, the journalists trying to figure out you know, how their own athletes did. And their first port of call was to the British Olympic Association. It was, you know, did did Coe sleep well? Is over on form? Are they talking to each other? What, you know, it was just, a, it was a fascination, not just by the British media, but by the, um, by the international media. I did actually do one minor press conference, which with, with virtually 400 journalists turning up. And, and they were from all over the place. So the intensity of that, and, and, you know, sports writers at the time, people like Colin Hart of The Sun, Neil Wilson, Daily Mail, obviously David Miller, uh, James Coote, The Telegraph, people like that. Um, no, sadly, James had actually, James had, had passed away the year before, but all the, the writers, all, all now, and I sort of, catch up with them occasionally will all say that as far as they were concerned in their sports writing careers they can only remember one rivalry that got near that on occasion surpassed it and that was anything that Ali was doing and the Ali Frazier fights at, at the time and the you know just the intensity and the pressure and I guess the one learning for me from all that is that you can train incredibly hard, you can be in physically great shape, but the intensity and the pressure that an Olympic Games puts you under is like nothing else. And I've always suggested very gently to federations that if you have the opportunity to select athletes or try and find space in your selection policy for athletes that you think have got real talent and that talent may still be another four years in the gestation, do give them the opportunity, even if they don't survive the first round, give them the opportunity to go to a Games so that they understand about life in the village, the transportation, the fact that you have a lot of time on your hands. And that in itself can be quite destructive. Um, when you're trying to get young athletes, you know, they're either overtraining or sometimes overeating. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a complete, in a way, dislocation to the normal day and cycle that they have in their own environments, their communities, maybe colleges, maybe at home with families. And giving them that exposure is huge. And for me, the 800 metres, although Steve thoroughly deserved to win the race, I ran a poor race that day. I think that was as much down to my inexperience in championship racing um, as it had anything to do uh, with, you know, the relative skills or abilities of the athletes. And Steve will tell you that he thought, he found Moscow physically and mentally pretty bruising as well. 
Steve Ovet in second place and Coe's got an awful lot to do. He's coming from a long way back, but they've been all over the place in this race. It's been a running battle. Kirov leads, Ovet second. Coe is beaten surely. Ovet hits the front and Coe can't get through. Steve Ovet coming home to take the gold medal for Great Britain to beat Sebastian Coe against the silver. Kirov gets the bronze. That was a race about experience. It was almost it almost split the country in half, and and there was a bit of a north south here element here, and it was funny because I was I was actually I, I sort of consider myself in a way to be a northerner because I was brought up in, during the, the most impactful years in Sheffield, but I was actually born in Fulham, in West London. My mother and my father are really or were really quintessentially West Londoners. I was living in Sheffield and consider myself, so for all intents and purposes, I competed for Yorkshire for 15, 16 seasons. I was born in Fulham, in West London. Uh, and so they tended to be a sort of, well, Steve was from the South Coast. He was a Brighton boy. So the world, I, the world sort of divided, you know, once you sort of got to Birmingham. And I sense that, although, and, and I think most people still don't, think that I'm, I'm actually a Londoner by birth, they tend to think, oh, he's, he's ran for Yorkshire and lived in Sheffield, so he's a Yorkshireman, um, sort of an adopted Yorkshireman, really. Um, and it was really funny. I, I noticed that it, there, was an, there was an element of that. And certainly in, uh, you know, if you, you know, the north of England, that was, that, in a way, I suppose that was my stronghold. But if I always sensed if I went, much south of Birmingham, then um, Steve was the preferred son in those competitions. Can they outsprint each other? Which one is the faster? Ovet is a pulling position coming up to attack. There'll be no waves, I suspect, today to the crowd. And there goes Cole. He's looking for Ovet, wondering where he is. He's right there behind him. And Ovet gathers himself on the near side. Strong with the far side. And could this be Ovet's first defeat? Ovet is in trouble. And Cole gets the revenge he wants. It's Strauss, third is Hovind, fourth is Busser, fifth is Fontadala, sixth Blanchy, seventh Marigio, eighth Cram, and in ninth place the Yugoslav. And what a comeback for Sebastian Coe, the man they write off totally. I was very lucky to be brought up in Sheffield. Sheffield, if you don't know the city, has a wonderful capacity to be very level-headed. It's not Manchester. It, it's not Leeds, actually. It, it has very much, uh, it's got a very different type of DNA. I guess it's because of the, the history of the, you know, just heavy industry, steel, coal. Um, and it's, and I always, I always said to, remember talking to Jess Ennis about this, and Jess was also of the opinion that she was very lucky to go through her major competitions um, uh, in, in a Sheffield environment. Yeah, they were excited. They were very pleased for you, but you didn't get pestered in the street. They sort of let you get on with things. They were incredibly proud that you were from the city and, you know, uh, one of theirs. And I, and I remember Jess saying, and I agreed with her, there's no reason to leave Sheffield. If if I made one error in the lead up to Moscow, 
Uh, I was right to get out of the country for certain periods of time, warm weather and all that. I spent too long away from the Sheffield environment, spent too long away from friends, training partners, and I became physically in great shape, but I, I just wasn't mentally quite as sharp as I should have been. And I think had I had the balancing influence over that period of more time with friends and family and in an environment and a landscape that I absolutely adored because, you know, the Peak District was was on the doorstep. I think, funnily enough, I think the 800 might have been slightly different. I'm not making an excuse, but I just think looking at it, you know, I, I, I suddenly lost a very important hinterland to me. And I will always encourage athletes off my own experience. Yes, take some time out, do, do something different, enjoy a different environment, but don't get too far away from quintessentially what makes you who you are. And that is family, landscape, geography, friendships, education. Just remember that don't play around with too many of those variables. And those are all crucial assets in the pathway for an athlete to succeed. I think there's no coincidence that those athletes that are comfortable in their own skin and comfortable in their own environment um, are the ones that tend to, that that I think becomes quite an important shield for them uh, from the, you know, the other pressures. It's almost, you know, landscape, geography, French, it's almost your Praetorian Guard, actually. And being in communities that know you uh, and don't want to be oppressive about it, but just actually enjoy the fact you're in their community is is quite a comfort for um, for athletes. And I think there's a very close correlation between those that have that that contentment in their own landscape and those that compete and compete consistently. I knew John Walker was absolutely. I mean, John spent weeks and weeks and weeks on the road because everything from New Zealand is a long way. But when John really got serious about something, he would go back to New Zealand. And I think that's the same with a lot of athletes. Early in 1990, despite still being British number one in 800 metres and 1500 metres, Sebastian Coe took the decision to retire from athletics and embarked on a career in politics. Coe was elected as a Member of Parliament for Falmouth and Camborne in 1992 for the Conservative Party, a move which he found to be a significant departure from the world of competition that he left behind. I wasn't forced to retire. I could probably have gone on for maybe a couple more, two or three more seasons. I knew enough about my event to win races that I probably shouldn't have won at the end of my career simply because I just instinctively knew how to play at that stage a maturer game of poker than anyone else. And, you know, competition at the highest level is a bit like poker. You know, there aren't, you know, you don't always have a great hand, but you certainly don't tell anybody that you haven't got a great hand. And there were races I won. I knew that I'd won, actually, before I got onto the track. I could see it in the warm-up or even a few weeks beforehand. And so I could probably have gone on winning, but actually it was an interesting moment for me. I, it was, I was actually on a long run uh, one morning in, at the end of 89. Uh, it was 89, 
And I can't remember anyway. I remember just thinking, I don't know why I got round to thinking about it, but I could imagine at that stage of the season, always doing something different that would elicit a better performance. I could run faster. Though, you know, I could go overseas. I could rebalance the endurance and the distance and the weights. There were always things I was thought I could do. And I suddenly got to the conclusion that, look, I can probably do all that, but I'm never going to run any faster. And it was very different from could I win races? And I didn't know the answer to the question I got posed in the earlier part of my career was, you know, what is it, you know, what is it that really keeps the spark, you know, alight, the flame alight? And actually, it was only that day I could answer the question. And it really wasn't about winning races. It was about that restless curiosity about trying to be better from one year to the next, six months, a month, even days. And as soon as I felt that I couldn't run any quicker, that's when the flame went out. So I didn't find it that difficult. And and that was it. I mean, I really did sort of just put the shutter down. But yeah, there were <clears throat> there were some days where I would wake up and there would still be a void. Um, although, and although I was busy and although I was focused on a sort of different type of campaign, it was quite a wrench where you build your running, which I've always loved doing, around the rest of the day <laughs> and not the rest of the day around your running. And I guess... One of the other challenges for people that have been in, in high quality competition, it's there is nothing subjective about it. It is entirely objective. And often careers, particularly in politics, there is no objectivity in anything to do with politics. Nothing at all. Uh, and that I found a little frustrating, that it didn't seem to have a great deal to do with ability or hard work or or talent or intellectual rigor it just was it was you know it, it was just a rather upended system and I think for, for people that have come through years of exact measurement and distance and height and the stopwatch frankly doesn't lie and you know you finish first or you finish second and it's it's pretty clear cut and so many things athletes tend to go on to do uh, are completely the opposite. And I think that's, for me, that was, that was the biggest challenge. And ultimately, I guess, why I decided not, when I lost my constituency in 1997, I stayed on in politics, but in a very different capacity. And, and I chose not to go back into Parliament because... Although I enjoyed my time there, I just found that element of it a little bit difficult to come to terms with. Crowd coming away again. 50,000 people on there. Crowd's roaring Coho. He's got a tremendous revival there. And he comes home with a new world record. Three minutes, 47.3. Boys in second place. But that is what Cole wanted to do.
In the 2000s, Coe embarked on a career in sports administration. He considers his greatest achievement as chairing the successful bid and helping to stage the London 2012 Olympics. In 2015, he was elected president of the International Association of Athletics Federations, and in 2020, he was elected a member of the International Olympic Committee. Here, he reflects on what he learned from his time competing at the elite level and valuable friendships he forged along the way. There is nothing to compare with the 40 minutes before an Olympic final, when half an hour of that is sitting in a call room, not much bigger than, you know, than a broom cupboard, with eight or nine other athletes, sometimes more, where you're all slightly looking at each other, wondering who's actually got the national lottery ticket in their hand. And the ability to deal with that, I think, for me as an experience is beyond compare. Uh, there's nothing I've ever done in anything that remotely compares with the, those that 20, 30, 40 minutes before a, a big competition where at, in essence you're sitting there you know, just trying to have the discipline of reminding yourself of all the things that you've done, the hard work, the sacrifices, not your own sacrifices, but those of the people around you, your family, your friends, your coaches. Uh, and at the end of that process, if you come out the right side, the, the overwhelming emotion is not one of self-satisfaction or celebration. It's just the bloody relief that you haven't let down the people that have been there with you for 10, 15, 20 years. So that probably tells you quite a lot. So for me, that is the number one experience. The number two is that for me, having spanned two Olympic Games that could not have been more different and in such different and interesting political times, you know, that's the politician in me. I'm, I'm far more interested in, in political landscape than I am actually about point scoring. That's probably why I wasn't a particularly good uh, politician. It just that I was much more interested in the fact that by the age of 24, 25, I'd competed in so many Iron Curtain countries. I would sit in lectures um, at university listening to people describing, you know, in academic terms, what the Cold War was about. And I'd been to East Germany. I knew, you know, actually it was it was quite different. And so for me, Sport gave me an insight into so many different aspects of life that I'm, that is the great privilege with sport. Uh, and it gave me an insight at a far younger age than would have probably, than would have been the case had I not had sport. And to go to the first communist games uh, with the, you know, the command and control of other games set in, you know, the bleakest element of Cold War. Uh, and then four years later to be at the cartoonish extravagance of an LA Games where, you know, you had 84 white grand pianos all played by 84 Liberace lookalikes in an opening ceremony and, you know, and Rocket Man ascending from the, you know, the main, you know, the, the, the finishing straight. And, you know, to, 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 to be 
in a on a US, you know, the UCLA campus up at Westwood and wandering out with Daley Thompson to, to get a burger, you know, from the village was, you know, I, I couldn't have spanned two more different games. And it's very interesting to me that my closest friend in the sport, uh, in athletics and arguably, well, he is one of my closest friends, is Daley Thompson. And I think the fact that we both went through the 80 and 84 experience, not just as, you know, as sort of people in the same team, but as close friends. In fact, I roomed with Daly in 1984 in LA. It was in Moscow when, after I lost the 800, and I really didn't particularly want to face the day, he burst into my uh, room in the in the Olympic Village in Moscow, which I was actually sharing with Alan Wells, and I was sort of buried under the duvet, not really wanting to face the day or another onslaught from the media. And he walked in, and I sort of said lamely to him, "What's what's the weather like?" And he ripped open the curtains. And, uh, I mean, daily ripping open curtains is like removing the side of your house. And he looked it out and he turned to me, he said, oh, it all looks a bit silver out there, which was the Daly Thompson School of Psychotherapy, which was probably the first, the first um, kick, actually, that I needed. And the sort of the rest of it sort of came into place. So it's interesting to me that two of us have remained very good friends. And I think that's a friendship that was in large part forged through um, the, 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 the uh, Olympic experiences. So. Second thing for me is great is great friendship, great friendship. I don't have great friends from school. In fact, I don't have any friends from school. Uh, all my friends tend to be from university and from athletics, and that's a that's a gift to have as well. And I think it's an old fashioned concept, but I'll say it. I do think sport for in, in the lives of young people helps them understand master two concepts and that whether we like it or not is winning and losing uh, and the ability to come to terms with the fact that there are days where actually you're just beaten by somebody who is better than you and more talented and faster and made better choices in a race uh, and there are days where you come through and you you win. And I think sport gives you really the ability to deal with both those imposters. The Athletes Record is brought to you in partnership with Lifestyle Sports, Ireland's leading sports retailer. Whether you're a novice runner or an established pro, Lifestyle Sports has all the gear you need to help you train faster, further and stronger. This podcast is produced in partnership with Athletics Ireland and Irish Runner magazine. The Athletes Record is produced by Record Media. Subscribe now for further episodes in our series.